For those of you all that don't know me, my name is Justin Padgett, and I am a pastoral intern here at Ashland Church, and I am delighted this morning to have the opportunity to share with you from God's Word. Uh, it's a privilege that Pastor Jamie would ask me to fill his pulpit while he's away enjoying some time with his family. And I am super excited about the text that I have to share with you this morning. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Joshua chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 22 through 27 this morning. And the text I've chosen to share with you today is one that's really personal to me. It's had a tremendous impact on my life. So this sermon is a little bit different than one I would typically preach. I'll probably talk about myself and my family a little bit more than I usually would. But I really want to share with you how this text has impacted me with the hope that we might make much of Jesus this morning the one who has conquered sin and death on our behalf. And I hope as we do that, your faith will be encouraged. And you will be encouraged to step out in courageous faith and obedience. So I'd ask you all to stand with me this morning in reverence to reading God's word. Again, we're looking at Joshua chapter 10. We'll begin in verse 22. And I ask you to stand this morning to hear the words of our king our king that gives us victory. Joshua 10, verse 22 says this. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring those, kings, those five kings out from the cave. And they did so and brought those kings out to him from the cave. The king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And when they brought those kings out to Joshua, Joshua summoned all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they came near and put their feet on their necks. And Joshua said to them, do not be afraid or discouraged. Be strong and courageous, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death, and he hanged them on five trees, and they hung on the trees until evening. But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this very day. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray right now that as we look to your word and we look to this miraculous victory, Lord, that it would point us to Jesus. Lord, that we would get a clear picture of his triumphant victory over sin and death. And Lord, may that produce courageous faith and obedience, obedience in our hearts and in our lives this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You all may be seated. Now, there's a little bit of a backstory to this text, and it's kind of lengthy, but I'll, I'll do my best to hit all the highlights and keep it short. And to understand why this text impacts me so much, you have to go back four years. In August 2014, our life was dramatically changed, and we began one of the most difficult struggles of our lives. 
At the time, we were fostering Brian and Sarah, our children that we have now adopted. And that foster process, that process to adopt them had stalled. We, had told, we were told that we were eventually going to be able to adopt them, but nobody was sure when. And the process was not moving forward with the speed we would have liked. So we were quite frustrated. And in the midst of that frustration, I had the bright idea that I was going to step away from my job and become a full-time seminary student. I'd been serving as a youth pastor, and I felt the Lord was leading me to move toward being a senior pastor, and I thought getting a seminary education was exactly what I needed in order to do that. So we made these big plans that I was going to quit my job and become a full-time seminary student, and I handed in my resignation on a Wednesday night. And that Thursday, Brian had a doctor's appointment, and it was a doctor's appointment for a biopsy. Now, when I say that, that probably sounds really scary to you all, but at the time, we weren't really worried about it. The doctors had told us that they thought these places that were causing him all sorts of pain growing in his bones were benign. They had a big fancy name for it that I can't pronounce, but it was this really rare disease that sometimes young men develop as they grow, and it causes them to grow benign tumors in their bones. And they had told us, he's going to suffer with this, but we can treat the pain, and eventually he will grow out of it when he's done growing. So I turned in my resignation that Wednesday. Brian had that biopsy Thursday, and Friday, we found out Ashley was pregnant. Now, that came as a tremendous shock to us because part of the reason we were fostering with the intent to adopt is we were told we would not be able to have kids. So here I have quit my job, and now Ashley's pregnant. And as it continues, the doctor calls me Monday, not even a week after turning in my resignation. And he says, Justin, it's not like we thought. Brian has lymphoma. So we were shocked, we were taken back, we experienced all sorts of anxiety with that diagnosis. But looking back, we had a lot of hope as we went into that. I can remember sitting down and talking to Brian and explaining to him, you've got cancer. But let me tell you some good news. Your mom, who wasn't supposed to be able to get pregnant, is pregnant. If the Lord can heal her, he can heal you. So we went into that six months of treatment with a lot of faith and a lot of hope that Brian would be made well. And it brought about some good things. We kept seeing the Lord work for good. One of the things it did was it sped up the stalled adoption process. The state moved very quickly through that process that seemed to have stalled so that we could adopt Brian and take care of him. So we kept seeing the Lord work for good, and we were so encouraged. And Brian excelled and did well. And we thought we had put all that behind us. But we were really hit hard when the cancer came back a year and a half later. We had so much faith, we had so much hope that first go around, and getting that second diagnosis, that diagnosis that it had come back, just crushed us. It left me struggling with all sorts of anger, all sorts of depression, all sorts of anxiety. And the doctors told us the best thing that we could do is give Brian oral chemotherapy at home for a year and then do a bone marrow transplant. And if you don't know much about that process, what they do is they basically, with a bone marrow transplant, they give you so much chemotherapy that it puts you at the point of death. Now, they do that in hopes to kill all the cancer. And what they do with your bone marrow, with your stem cells, is they give that back to you to rescue you. So it's quite a risky procedure. 
And being at home for a year and given this prescription of oral chemotherapy, waiting for that transplant produced so much anxiety in me. It's like all I had to do was sit around and worry about what was going to happen a year later when this transplant came. And it was at the most difficult point in that struggle that I came across this text. Now, to be transparent with you all, what I was doing was simply reading my quiet time, my daily scripture reading. And I had been reading through the book of Joshua, and honestly, I didn't have a lot of high hopes that this book was going to tell me something I needed to hear that pertained to my son having cancer and me dealing with all this anxiety because of it. But I came across this text, and it had a profound impact on that. And I came across it at just the right time. So I want to take a look at it with you all this morning. And to give you a little bit of context of what's going on here in the book of Joshua, the people of Israel, they have been freed from slavery. God has promised to bring them into the land of Canaan. But they refuse to go in. Because of sin, because of disobedience, because of lack of faith, they refuse to go in. They spend 40 years wandering in the desert. And God does eventually lead them in. And we're so familiar with some of these stories. The people of Israel, they cross the Jordan on dry ground. They encircle the walls of Jericho and they march around them. And they come tumbling down. And as the people begin to conquer this land that the Lord has promised them, the fear and the dread of them, it spreads throughout all of the land, and the people become afraid of them. Like the people of Gibeon, we read, read about in chapter 9, they're afraid, they're scared of the people of Israel, so they make this deceitful treaty with them and ask the people of Israel to become their allies and not kill them, and Israel does. So chapter 10 picks up in the midst of this. The surrounding neighboring countries, they did not like that Gibeon had made this treaty with Israel. They were upset by it. So five kings band together with their armies to wipe them out. They say, how dare those people of Gibeon make a treaty with Israel, our enemies? Let's go kill them. And the people of Gibeon, they plead with Israel to come and rescue them, to come to their aid, and that's exactly what Israel does. And just like we've read about so many times before in Joshua, God shows up. The sun stands still, the moon stands still, so that the people can have time to execute victory fully and completely. Giant hailstones fall on the enemies. We're told in chapter 10 that the hailstones kill more people than the soldiers of Israel. And as you read through the text, the text even seems to imply that the Lord is the one that does this. The Lord destroys their enemies and even chases and pursues them so that they're destroyed completely. The text goes above and beyond to show us that the Lord is at work here. So going, moving toward these five kings, what happens is, is they realize they're defeated in battle. They hide themselves in caves. They go to this cave and they hide out, and they're found. And Joshua says, just seal it up. Put some rocks over it. Put some guards in front of it. We'll deal with those kings later. You finish exacting this victory on your enemies. So we pick up in verse 25 with the battle being over. The Bible says this in verse 25. Joshua gives this command 
that they are to have courageous faith. He says, do not be afraid or dismayed. Be strong and courageous. Now, this is really the theme of the book of Joshua. If you're familiar with it, it's something that's repeated throughout. God tells him, don't fear, don't be afraid. Don't worry, just trust me, just obey. And it's repeated so many times, and it makes you wonder, why does God ask us to, why does he repeatedly tell us to not be afraid? Well, from an earthly perspective, the people of Israel had all sorts of reasons to be afraid. See, what they were, they were escaped slaves. They weren't experienced warriors. I think sometimes we glamorize this story. We think of the people of Israel as these mighty warriors. We think about Joshua and Caleb, for instance. And when we see them, we picture superheroes. But if you actually read the text, what you realize is these are old men. They're not superheroes. They're senior adults. They could have been members of AARP. <laughs> so we begin looking at things like that, and we're like, wait a minute, these are escaped slaves with old warriors that are leading them. As they enter the land, they have no land, they have no cities, they have no fortifications, and they're facing these fortified cities with these mighty armies. And they're facing these kings that were considered powerful men, often in these cultures that were thought of as gods, and they're afraid. And that's why God constantly tells them, don't be afraid, be strong, be courageous, trust me, do not fear. He tells them that over and over again because from their perspective, they had every reason to be afraid. And if you notice, what they're afraid of is they're afraid of obeying. They're afraid of doing what God has commanded them to do, which is take possession of the land. Why? Why are they afraid of this? because of the consequences that might happen. See, if they go up in battle against these armies to take possession of this land, they might die. God might wipe... <laughs> if God is not with them, they might get wiped out. See, the consequence of doing this, if they fail, if they lose, it's death. So they're afraid to be obedient. They're afraid to do what God has commanded them to do. And see, the truth is we're a lot like Israel. Sometimes we're very afraid to be obedient. Now, I find this very ironic because often we're very afraid to be obedient, but we're not scared to be disobedient at all. And there's a great deal of irony there. But we see this frequently. I told you all before that I used to do youth ministry. And I saw this one time in a father. He wanted to meet with me, and he was upset with me because his daughter had decided she wanted to spend the summer uh, being a missionary with the North American Mission Board. She had just finished her junior year in high school, and this is something she wanted to do. And this father had arranged a meeting with me because he was really upset at her decision, and frankly really upset at me because he thought I was to blame. So I can remember sitting across from him and having him express to me that he did not want his daughter to spend her summer as a missionary. And what was at the heart of it was he was afraid that he, if he let his daughter go, something bad might happen to her. That's what he kept saying to me over and over and over again. Who knows what might happen to her if I let her spend her whole summer doing this? 
And I got to talk to him a little bit, and I tried to say it nicely, but I just encouraged him, it's always right to be obedient. Even if it seems hard, even if it seems scary, even if it seems costly. I got to encourage him, the Lord loves your daughter. He's going to take care of her as she steps out in obedience. But see that fear that that father has? It's inside of all of us, too. We're scared to be obedient. We're afraid to obey. For instance, there's not a long line of people waiting to go to the Middle East to share the gospel. There are not numerous people signed up to go to East Asia where Christianity is illegal. And part of that is because we're afraid. And even doing things in safe places, sometimes the line is not that long for people to go on mission trips, even to places that are safe. Why is that? It's because we're afraid. We're afraid to step out of our comfort zone. We're afraid something bad might happen to us. We're afraid to go to those unreached people groups because we're scared that we might die. And see, this affects every area of our life. It hits a little closer to home when you think about personal evangelism, when you think about sharing the gospel with your friends, with your family, with your neighbors. There is fear that wells up inside of all of us as we consider those things. We're scared if I talk with this person about Jesus, they might think I'm crazy. They might think I'm weird. They might not want to hang around me. And we fear what others might think about us if we share the gospel with them. We see this in numerous ways. We fear giving. If I give my money to the Lord, I'll go broke. I won't have any money for myself. I won't have the money that I need. We fear things like church attendance. And I know all of you all are here this morning, so I'm preaching to the choir. But we're fearful that if we attend church, if we plug into a BFG, if we devote our time to these things, we might waste our time and we might not get the return on investment that we're looking for. There's fear inside of us. We do the same thing with reading our Bible daily, with praying daily. We're afraid we might waste our time if we do these things. We're frequently fearful of being obedient. But in the midst of this, God calls to us and he says, be strong, be courageous, be obedient. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to do what I have commanded you to do. And this is the theme we see in Joshua. We see it over and over and over again. God says, I'm with you. I'm for you. I will fight for you. I am faithful. Don't fear. Just trust me and just obey. And this command that we're given to have courageous faith, this courageous faith that we're it's rooted in the promises of God. It's not a faith that we're supposed to have in and of ourselves or in our might, but it's rooted in God and his promises. Look at me at verse 24 and 25. He asks for the these kings to be brought out to him. And he says, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And he goes on down in verse 25, he says this, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. So God makes this outlandish promise. He says to the people of Israel, this is what I'm going to do to all of your enemies. I'm going to wipe them out. I'm going to destroy them. And I want this image burnt in your mind. I want to give you an illustration. I want you to be able to visualize this. Bring those kings out and you put your feet on their necks. 
and you let this image be burnt into your mind as a sign of what I will do to all your enemies, all those who oppose you as you follow me. This is to illustrate that. And he makes this promise that he will destroy all their enemies, and he gives them this clear picture. And it begs the question, will God keep his promises? Will he do this? Will he wipe out all of their enemies? Will he crush all of them beneath his feet? Now that's something Joshua wants to answer for us. It's his summary of the book and what God has done for him. He says this, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Joshua says, God has kept his promises so far, and he will keep them again. So when he promises to destroy your enemies, that's exactly what he'll do. He says, remember your past faithfulness. God freed you from slavery. He's made Abraham into this great nation. He's fed you in the wilderness. He's given you all this land that he has promised. He has been faithful. And we see time and time again in this book, that's exactly what God does. He gives them victory over and over and over again against their enemies. But there's a problem. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that these victories are not lasting. If you turn over to the next book in your Bible, to Judges, you see that the people of Israel are caught in sin, they're caught in rebellion, they're caught in idolatry worshiping false gods. And as a result of that, they experience consequences for their sin, usually in the form of an enemy coming against them. The enemy will have victory over them. And by the way, God has promised all this. It's another evidence of his faithfulness. But their enemy will get victory over them and they'll cry out to God and he'll send a judge, a deliverer to rescue them. And this happens over and over and over again in the book of Judges. The people sin. God rescues them through a judge. But as the cycle continues, their sin and rebellion gets worse and worse. And these judges become less and less heroic. And the writer of the book of Judges says this. He says, in those days there was was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. He says there's sin, there's rebellion, the people of Israel are being defeated by their enemies. And he gives us this, us this glimmer of hope that maybe, maybe if a king shows up, maybe then things will get better. So as you turn through your Old Testament, you see that kings do show up, and David comes, and he's described as this man after God's own heart. And he does all these great things, but he also sins and rebels, commits murder and adultery. God makes him these great promises that this Messiah, this Savior, this King that's going to rescue people from their sin, from their enemies, it's going to come. He says things to David like, sit at my right hand, make your enemies your footstool. And we begin to think that maybe David's son, maybe he'll be the one that truly destroys all the enemies. And if you're familiar with your Bible, you know Solomon shows up. And he's wise and he does some great things. But in all of his wisdom, he does the three things that a king was forbidden from doing. He takes many wives, he takes horses from Egypt, and he amasses much wealth for himself. 
And time and time again, we see these heroes show up that we're hoping might defeat God's enemies, and they fail. And the people become more sinful. They become more rebellious. They worship all sorts of idols, engage in all sorts of disobedience. And what happens? God drives them out of the promised land. He sends them into exile. And notice God does to them exactly what he's doing to the Amorites in this text. See, God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. So he's driving out the sinful Amorites in this text. If you look forward in your Old Testament, he drives sinful Israel out of his presence. And if you look back, you see him doing the same thing to Adam and Eve. As they rebel and sin against him, he drives them from his presence. But in the midst of all this sin and all this rebellion, there are these promises God promises in Genesis 3 that there will be a Savior that will come and he will crush the head of the serpent. But the Old Testament leaves us longing for that Savior, longing for that warrior to show up and to truly defeat all of Israel's enemies. We don't see it happen in the Old Testament. Matter of fact, the Old Testament, it's a lot like infinity war now i'm gonna show myself a nerd here but that's okay i love superheroes and if you've seen the movie infinity war you know that thanos is trying to destroy half the universe he doesn't want to destroy it all just half and he has this plan to do that and you see all of our favorite superheroes take a turn at defeating this villain but none of them are able to do it. There's all these great battle scenes, and you think maybe this guy will defeat him. He doesn't. And you think, well, maybe this person will defeat him. He doesn't. Well, maybe this group of people will defeat him. No, it doesn't happen. And it leaves you longing for someone to show up and defeat this guy and fix the universe that he's destroyed. And that's exactly what the Old Testament does for us. It leaves us longing for someone to show up and to fix the sin problem. And thankfully, there is good news. That person shows up, and that person is Jesus. See, these great promises that God makes about destroying enemies, crushing the head of the serpent, fixing the sin problem, defeating death, Those things find their fulfillment in Jesus. See, all these Old Testament victories, all these Old Testament heroes, they are pointing to Christ. But here's the interesting thing. When Jesus doesn't show up, or when Jesus shows up, he doesn't show up to slaughter his enemies. He doesn't show up with his sword in hand. He doesn't show up with a weapon in hand. No, it's quite the opposite. He shows up and he lives a sinless life perfectly obedient life. And he humbles himself to die on a cross. He's forsaken by the Father, separated from his presence, and hung on a cross. And notice the similarities here. He's hung on a tree, just like these Amorite kings that we read about in Joshua 10. He's hung on a tree, and he's laid in a tomb. He's laid in a cave, and what's placed over that? A rock. 
just like we see with these Amorite kings. So here's what Jesus does for us. He he takes our sin and he's crucified as an enemy of God so that we might become righteous sons. It's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians. He says, for our sake he made him to him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, what Jesus does for us is he becomes the enemy of God in our place. He dies on a cross. And unlike these Amorite kings, he does not stay dead. He is raised three days later to make his victory over sin and death clear. And this is good news for us because we set ourselves up as the enemies of God every time we sin and rebel against him. See, when we read these Old Testament stories, often we think of ourselves as the heroes. We think of ourselves as the good guys, but really who we are, we are the villains. The people we relate to most in this text are the Amorites, who are wicked sinners who deserve to be driven out of the presence of God. But what Jesus does is he comes to earth and he takes the place of his enemies. He bears the full wrath of God on the cross. He's laid in tomb and he's raised so that we might have life through him. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I would plead with you, turn to this one who offered himself to save you. Trust in him. Depend on his death and resurrection for your salvation so that you might have life. He became an enemy so that we might have eternal life. You can share in this victory through faith. Trust him, believe in him. And see, we as believers, what this does, the reality that Jesus has defeated our enemies, he's crushed Satan and sin and death for us, that gives us a better foundation for obedience. It gives us a better foundation for obedience than the people of Israel had. It calls us to courageous faith in the conquering Christ, The writer of Hebrews is really helpful as we think about how to apply this. He says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So what does that mean? What is Jesus' victory over sin and death? mean? I'll tell you what it meant to me. It meant when Brian was scared after that second cancer diagnosis that he was going to die, it meant I could sit on his bed and tell him, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You have believed in Jesus and you need not fear. Because here's the truth. In Christ, if you are a believer, if you're depending on his death and resurrection for victory over sin and death, there is no worst case scenario for you. In Christ, God has taken the worst thing you could ever imagine, which is death, and he's turned it into the best thing that could ever happen to you, which you could ever experience, which is eternal life. There is no worst case scenario, so we need not fear. We become like the Apostle Paul and we can say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
It would be better if we died because of Jesus, because he has defeated our enemies. And this is a big deal because if the Lord tarries, something will kill us all. Something will kill us. Whether it's cancer, whether it's heart disease, whether it's high blood pressure, whether it's one of the many other diseases that are out there, if Jesus doesn't return soon in our lifetime, one of those things will get us. But we need not fear them because he walked out of that tomb after being dead three days. We need not fear. And since we've been freed from the fear of death, what that does is that liberates us from all of our other fears, all of our other anxieties. It liberates us from them. Well, how does it do that? Somebody in my BFG a few years ago was helpful in explaining this to me. See, I told you all I struggled with anxiety quite a bit as Brian was going through this. And someone in our BFG shared that they had had a similar struggle. And what they suggested to me was to carry those fears and those anxieties out to the worst-case scenario. They said, follow it through. Say so what to all of those fears. Well, I'm scared that I might die. I'm scared I'm sick. Well, so what? If you die, you'll go and be with Jesus. And we can do that with all of our fears, with all of our anxieties. For instance, if you're worried about money, you can do that to that. Well, what happens if I don't have enough money? Well, then I might not have enough food. Then I might starve. So what? You'll go and you'll be with Jesus, and that is gain. That is far better. It liberates us from those fears because there is no worst-case scenario. So those areas of obedience that we struggle with when we think about going on a mission trip, we don't have to worry about it. If the plane goes down, if the people we're trying to reach cut they cut our heads off, that would be gain. It liberates us from that fear. We don't have to worry about what we're going to get back on our taxes this year. Paul tells us we have every spiritual blessing in Christ. So we need not fear. And what that does is that frees us up to give. Since we have everything we need in Jesus, we're free to give it all away. We can give it away because we've been liberated from that fear. We don't have to fear acceptance. Sometimes we're often so afraid that people might not like us, that we might not be accepted. We need not fear that. We've been accepted by our Heavenly Father in Jesus Christ. He sees us as a child that He is well pleased with. So we need not fear what other people think about us. And what that does is that frees us up to share the gospel. It frees us up to obey. See, we can charge out boldly with the gospel. We can charge out courageously in obedience because we've been freed from fear. And maybe you're sitting here and you're thinking, you know, Justin, you haven't really hit on the thing that I'm afraid of. You've not really nailed down my anxiety. You've not really addressed that. Well, there's good news for you. In Romans chapter 8, Paul lists out all these things that we might be afraid of, all these horrible things that could happen to us. And here's the conclusion he comes to. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. We need not fear because Jesus has crushed our enemies, and that compels us forward to courageous faith and obedience. Now, I want you all to understand, this is not the prosperity gospel. 
I'm not telling you what those charlatans on TV might tell you, that follow Jesus and you'll be healthy and you'll be wealthy and you'll have a great life. As Pastor Jeremy says so well, it's not about your best life now, it's about your best life 10,000 years from now. So as we talk about these things, I don't want people to be confused. We're not talking about temporary healing. We're talking about eternal healing and eternal life. We're not talking about temporary wealth. We're talking about eternal riches poured out on us in the kingdom of Christ. See, the prosperity gospel, it doesn't have enough prosperity in it for me. God is doing something magnificent. He has done something remarkable in crushing our enemies of sin and death. We need not fear to obey. And here's the point. If God will take care of us like that in eternity, surely we can trust him to take care of us in the here and now. He will take care of us. We need not fear. Jesus has already won the battle. He has defeated our enemies. So stop worrying and trust the Christ who has conquered for us. But here's the reality. We don't really do a good job at that. If you're like me, you're very forgetful. I was recently reminded of how forgetful I am. See, October 28th is the day that we celebrate Adoption Day. It's something that's very, very important to us. I've talked about it a little bit today. We celebrate it, and we usually celebrate it quite big. But last October 28th, we were sitting in firehouse subs, and we realized we hadn't done anything to celebrate. Matter of fact, we didn't even realize that it was October 28th. And when my wife got the receipt and she saw the date on it, she got this really frantic, frazzled look on her face and said, it's adoption day and we haven't done anything to celebrate. And I began to think, how did that happen? Well, part of the problem was it never got put in my phone. If things don't get put in the calendar on my phone, I forget about them. If I don't put it on my to-do list, celebrate Adoption Day, it won't get celebrated. Maybe some of you all are the same way. And our family is so busy, it's so chaotic, it's so hectic, that we have a family calendar on the refrigerator. And out of curiosity, I looked to see if Adoption Day was marked on that family calendar. It was not. So we simply forgot about it. Something that is very important to our family, we forgot about. We do the same thing with the gospel. We often forget that Jesus has granted us victory over sin and over death. And we need those reminders in our lives. We need to remind ourselves of the victory that he's granted us. And it's something we need constantly. And thankfully, God puts those things in our lives. He gives us windows into his kingdom. He gives us glimpses into what he's doing and making all things new. That's what we see in the text. I'm so glad the text addresses this. Look at verse 27. It says, But at the time of the going down of the sun, Joshua commanded, and they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves. And they set large stones against the mouth of the cave, which remain to this day. So after these kings are defeated, after they're killed, they're put back in the cave, and a large pile of stones is put over it. And Joshua notes that those stones are there to this day. Now, if you're familiar with the book of Joshua, what Joshua is doing is he's setting up a memorial. 
We see the people doing this time and time again to remind them that God is faithful, that God keeps his promises, that he does deliver. He provides deliverance. They do this when they cross the Jordan on dry ground. Joshua instructs them to take out 12 stones and pile them up so that when they're children and when people ask, why are these stones here? They can say, because the Lord kept his promises. He gave us the land that he promised to, and we entered into that land crossing the Jordan on dry ground. He's doing the same thing here. He's saying, God has already given you one picture that's supposed to be burnt in your mind, your foot on the neck of your enemies. But here's another one, this big pile of stones right here marking their grave. He's reminding them, God is faithful, he provides victory, he delivers us, and he will crush your enemies. So when people look at that pile of stones and they ask, why are those there? They can say, because God delivered us from our enemies, just like he promised. All throughout the book, they're setting up reminders, and we need to do the same things in our lives. We need to set them up so that we remember victory. And I'm so thankful that I have four of them that run around our house. And if you were following along with my lengthy introduction, I told you about three of them. I came across this text about, I guess it was two years ago, it was March of 2017. I told you I was just in a very difficult place with anxiety, struggling with that. Right around the time I came across this text, Ashley came to me with a pregnancy test. And it was though God was saying, don't worry. I've got this. Just trust me. Everything's going to be all right. God has been gracious to me that every time I hear those footsteps of those four children, he reminds me that he's faithful, that he keeps his promises, that he does what he says. And of course, Brian's that constant reminder. I'm happy to share with you all he's doing really well. Um, he's two, almost two years out of transplant. They say the first year after is the most critical. He's not had a problem at all. He'll be two years in June. And we are so thankful for that. But it's the little things in his life that remind me of God's faithfulness, like taking him to get a haircut this week. He spent so much of his time with us bald that when we get to go and we get to get a haircut, that's something we celebrate. And it's just a little reminder just a little glimpse of God's faithfulness in our life. I would encourage you to set up those, when you see those little moments like that that remind you of God's faithfulness and goodness, take time to thank God for those. Remember those. They're helpful as we think about Jesus' victory for us. But some of you may be thinking, Justin, I don't have that. I don't have miraculous pregnancies. I don't have healing from cancer. What do I have to remind me of Jesus' victory? There's an empty tomb is what you have. God has provided you with something far better than that to show you what he's doing in making all things new. It's Jesus and his death and resurrection, and he's given you clearer pictures than that, and he's given you pictures in the church. That is what the church is here for, to remind you that Jesus has defeated your worst enemies, and you need not fear. As the gospel is proclaimed every Sunday faithfully, that is what you're told. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. God has crushed your enemies. As it's proclaimed, we hear that. We see that when we baptize someone. 
What are we saying when we baptize someone? It's a reminder. It's a sign. Just like putting those warriors putting their feet on the necks of their enemies. It's this visual illustration. Christ was dead and was raised, and those who have faith in him will be too. We do this when we take the Lord's Supper. What are we doing? We're having a victory feast. Looking forward to the day when we celebrate victory when all things are made new with Jesus. It's a reminder of that. And there are all sorts of other things like BFG. That's why you need to be in a Bible fellowship group. You need people to speak the truth of the gospel into your life. Life is hard. It's difficult. There are struggles. I don't know how we would have made it through those difficulties in our life without our BFG. You need that in your life. Sometimes it's simple things like reading your Bible. I came across this text right when I needed it the most, and it gave me courage. These things, they are reminders of what God is doing. They're windows into his kingdom. We get a glimpse of what he's doing in making all things new, in defeating and crushing all of our enemies. They're to remind us of his faithfulness, of his victory, and they're in to encourage us to faith and obedience. Let's pray.